This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And this election, there's so much attention on the governor's race in Colorado and on measures dealing with oil and gas and school funding that it's easy to overlook one fact. Control of the state Senate is up in the air. Republicans hold a narrow one-seat majority now, and there are a handful of seats in play this year. Here to explain what's at stake are CPR's Benta Berkland and Ben Marcus. Welcome to the program, both of you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Uh, first, Benta, why is so much attention and money focused on the state Senate rather than the Colorado House races? Like you mentioned, it's the narrow majority. And what that means to flip the chamber, it's a lot easier because the House isn't expected to change hands. Democrats have a solid majority there. So that that is why we're seeing so much more money being spent on the Senate. And it's, it's ramped up even more now that recent polls show that the Democratic candidate for governor, Jared Polis, has a comfortable lead. So that means the state Senate's even more important, serving as a backstop for Republicans, because if, if they don't have the Senate, Democrats are going to control both legislative chambers and the governor's office. A lot of business interests, such as the oil and gas industry, they don't want Democrats to be in charge of everything at the state level, especially with Polis potentially as governor. If you remember a few years ago, he supported a 2,000 foot distance between oil and gas drilling in homes and schools. That proposal didn't end up making it on the ballot, but the industry feels it could be crippling and they're pretty nervous. Uh, what you describe there is a potential trifecta, and uh, a number of sources, including 538 and Ballotpedia, list Colorado as a state that might see a trifecta after the midterm. Again, where control of the governor's mansion, the House and the Senate are uh, under one party. Uh, That's happened before in Colorado, for sure, Benta. Yes, we had that for a few years and it kind of culminated in 2013 when there were two successful recall elections of Democratic state lawmakers, the first in state history. And that was after the Aurora Theater shooting in Newtown and Democrats who had control of everything passed universal background checks and a ban on high capacity magazines. They eventually lost the majority and some people feel like it was because of that legislation and other things that they may be overreached. So I think there's there's a concern that if Democrats do take over everything, you know, how are they going to balance that power and make sure they don't swing Colorado too far to the left? Okay, so Benta is our public affairs reporter and Ben Marcus follows campaign finance and has been doing so with uh, all of the fascinating races in Colorado this year. So let's talk about money and the state Senate races. Lots of money pouring in, much of it reflecting what uh, Benta said from oil and gas companies, Ben. Yeah, I feel like in the last six months, I've said this over and over again. I've never seen anything like this before in terms of the, just the vast quantities of money, especially in the state Senate. When you add up the super PACs that are involved in these races, they can raise unlimited contributions. We're well over $10 million for really what is a handful of Senate races that are really in play here. And huh. yeah, Republicans do get a lot of money from oil and gas companies and probably the number one industry that supports them. But their super PACs tend to have a pretty broad business coalition. You see Anheuser-Busch in there. You see um, real estate developers um, giving big money. 
Democrats also have big money, though. They are not the party of small money in Colorado. They get a lot of money from education reformers. Uh, there's a big liberal dark money group called the 1630 Fund. We're not exactly sure who's behind that, but they're dumping a lot of money into these Senate races. So really unprecedented levels of spending at the super PAC level on these races. Now, what about direct contributions to candidates in these state Senate races? I actually feel like this is the more interesting story because the Democrats are vastly out raising the Republicans in these races. So Tammy Story, for instance, she's up against Tim Neville. That's a two-to-one money advantage in direct contributions. Faith Winter has a four-to-one advantage over Beth Martinez-Humanic, the Republican. Uh, And what's interesting, too, these Democratic candidates are getting money from out of state at levels far outstripping the Republican candidates. So there's enthusiasm even outside the state of Colorado for these races. Um, But they're just getting a lot of contributions from, you know, 2,000 contributions for Faith Winter when her opponent's only getting a few hundred. Like Faith the Winter, the, the, the Democrats. Yeah. yeah. Does that mean there's just more enthusiasm on the Democrat side, Benta? It's hard to say. It could also mean that Democrats maybe just have a superior fundraising machine when it comes to the hard side. And that would maybe make sense with what Ben was mentioning when it comes to the out-of-state contributions. But given the Republican money coming from super PACs and the soft side, they certainly have enough to get their message out. And Democrats say there's even more money flowing from the GOP side that isn't being tracked. There's also this question of diminishing returns when you have so much money flowing around focused on really just a handful of races. And even among those, just a couple are the absolute most competitive. Are voters getting this overload? Um, From personal experience, I live in one of the top two most competitive state Senate districts. I'm the coveted, unaffiliated female Jeffco <laughs> voter, uh, not a soccer mom quite, but you know, in that demographic, I brought some flyers in here. I have a lot of nine from the last day. I got my first flyer for the state Senate race in July. And out of the nine, eight of them were for the Republican, Christine Jensen. So Republicans are getting their message out. Republicans and Democrats are neck and neck and returned ballots so far for what that's worth. It's quite early, of course. Uh, ben, there is other political money flowing through the state that could affect Democrats. Is that right? Yeah, so this is actually kind of interesting. So the oil and gas industry has an issue group. This is called Protect Colorado. It has more money than any issue group has ever had in Colorado history, almost $40 million. Hmm. They're spending big money on the ballot issues that are on the ballot. But a lot of the voters they're going to target in those ballot campaigns are going to be probably conservative and Republican voters. So when you talk to conservatives and you say, look, there's a big money disadvantage for you in these state Senate races, they go, yeah, but we're going to be buoyed by a couple of things. Mm. A, the oil and gas money, which is not going to be advocating for candidates directly, but will be uh, targeting voters that may help conservative candidates, but also you've got tax issues on the ballot. And there are studies to show, the Denver Post had an interesting write-up about this, there's studies to show that conservative turnout increases when there are tax issues on the ballot. So these other issues may very well be influential on who turns out and, of course, how or who they vote for in these state Senate races. Uh, Anything to add there, Benta? Well, just that typically in a midterm election, as we've heard nationally, the party of the president doesn't do as well. And President Donald Trump didn't win in Colorado. He's not extremely popular here. Yet at the same time, our economy is 
doing really great. And so Democrats are worried their voters won't won't turn out. Um, I think that's a big concern. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders was just in Colorado trying to mobilize younger voters. Um, One of the 18-year-olds I spoke with attended a rally. And he said, you know, he's he's nervous that a good portion of younger voters are maybe disengaged. After Trump got elected, they feel their voices weren't heard. And they're just not going to bother. And also some Democrats are just so focused on 2020 because they dislike Trump so much, they're forgetting about the midterm altogether. Um, So for Democrats, it's just going to be critical to get voters like this engaged, especially if they hope to win control of the state Senate. Another woman I talked to was a little bit older. Her name's Catherine Clegg. She also attended the Sanders rally. She's retired. She taught at CU Boulder. She's from Longmont. She's unaffiliated, but she leans left. Well, the people I know are are pretty angry at the way things are and are really interested in the midterms. You know, I'm in my bubble, and (laughs) I'm hoping that bubble gets larger. (laughs) Well, I suppose we'll see if that bubble gets larger or if her bubble is burst. And, of course, these questions uh, have huge implications for what will happen with the state legislature. Thanks for being with us, both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's Benta Berkland and Ben Marcus talking with us about the balance of power in Colorado. Control of the state Senate is up for grabs this election. Republicans currently hold a one-seat majority. It's one of the shortest measures on the ballot this year. In just two sentences, Constitutional Amendment 74 asks voters to beef up private property rights by compensating people if something government does reduces their property values. The primary proponents are farmers, backed by big money from the oil and gas industry. Meanwhile, state and local governments are virtually in a panic over its potential passage. CPR's Grace Hood takes a closer look. This year's drought has thrown the economic hammer down on farmer Mark Arnish. We had one of the toughest wheat crops we've ever had in our history. We had a lot of hail that came at the wrong time and basically cut our harvest to about 10% of what we would expect as normal. About 200 yards away, a crew cuts aluminum siding for a small shed Arnish builds around his water pump. Supplemental income from water sales is one of the few bright spots in Arnish's operation. He sells it to Noble Energy for oil and gas development. Arnish is behind the push for Amendment 74. If the government suddenly adds restrictions that decreases the value of his water, Amendment 74 would make it easier for Arnish to get compensated for his loss. When you talk about a takings to somebody that uh, owns a a home or owns a small business, they, they have a hard time making that connection. But to a farmer, a takings is everything. Takings happens when property is acquired, damaged, or simply reduced in fair market value by the government. In addition to water, the measure seeks to protect mineral rights and private property. Chad Vorthman with the Colorado Farm Bureau says the process for compensation would play out in the courts. Right now, property owners get paid when losses are between 70 and 90 percent. He thinks it's time for new guidelines. It'll allow them to look back at that economic standard and say, maybe there isn't just one exact number that we have to go forward with. Is it appropriate to have a number that's below 50%? I think depending on the scenario, when you're looking at takings cases, they are very scenario specific. 
Amendment 74 got financial backing from the oil and gas industry. As mineral owners, energy companies could stand to benefit. But the intentionally vague language is drawing sharp words from critics. All right, every few years, we get a piece of legislation that comes along that is ridiculous. Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper slammed the proposal at a recent rally against Amendment 74. He's part of a bipartisan coalition. His comments were followed by Republican Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers. It is stupid, but I like to refer to it as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Southers says the state and U.S. constitutions already have sufficient protections for private property, and the courts are already operating well. There's no exception in this language that the government is motivated by health, safety, and welfare. The only test is, are you diminishing the value of my property in any way? Some say Colorado should learn from Oregon's experience. Twelve years ago, Oregon voters put a similar measure in place. Farmers wanted compensation for a law that they felt limited their ability to develop land. They made their case around a 90-year-old farm widow, Dorothy English, who wanted to build homes for relatives on her property. And this law, which she didn't even know about, uh, this statewide planning law, says she can't do that. Bob Stacy opposed the measure, but Oregon voters passed it. Stacy says there were unintended consequences. Vague language allowed timber companies to consider plans to develop housing on undeveloped land. Rural voters weren't happy. Ultimately, Oregonians cast votes on a second ballot measure with revised language. There's just compensation and then there's unjust enrichment. And Measure 37 was an example of unjust enrichment. But the Colorado Farm Bureau disagrees. It says the detail required by Oregon's process has already made local leaders there consider how their development policies affect property values. Next month, Colorado voters will decide whether to give state property owners a new layer of protection. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Let's take a deeper look now at what happened in Oregon. You heard from Bob Stacy in Grace's story. He's a member of the Metro Council. It's a regional government in the Portland area. And he's past executive director of a group that worked to modify the original measure. And so, Bob, welcome to the program, first off. Thanks for having me. Uh, there's been a very long fight in Oregon over property rights, and that came to a head in about 2004 when Oregon voters passed this Measure 37. As we heard, the face of it was a woman who wanted to build homes on her ex-urban land outside Portland. Just briefly tell us how the measure was worded and what it did. Sure. Um, measure 37, the, the ballot title says, Government must pay or forego enforcement when certain land use regulations reduce property value, which is a pretty attractive premise. And then uh, the campaign for the measure featured Dorothy English, 90-year-old widow. Uh, She and her husband had bought property outside of Portland in the rural area um, back in the 60s and then discovered when it came time to divide and provide home sites for family members on that property that they couldn't do that because it was now designated for farm and forestry. And along with other people who found themselves in that situation, they supported organizations like Oregonians in Action that wanted to get rid of land use laws and and, uh, unsuccessfully campaigned to repeal Oregon's land use planning law, uh, two um, unsuccessful elections in the 70s and one in the 80s, and then undertook a a long-term effort to uh, advocate for property rights over 
natural resource and farmland protection. And so 37 uh, comes about, and as you described it, it really gave landowners, property owners, two avenues. One, they could be compensated by government if something government did affected uh, the value of their land. Or uh, if the communities didn't want to compensate, I guess, financially, uh, they could say, okay, uh, these rules don't apply to you. Right. Um, And that's what every unit of government essentially did. Hey, we don't have a budget to pay people to... uh, follow the zoning laws. So if you can make the case that you owned the land before the land use planning law came into effect, uh, we will just stand back and let you build anything you could have built back before we had zoning or before we changed our zoning to protect farm and forest land. Okay. Now, the Colorado measure, that is uh, Amendment 74, doesn't have that sort of escape clause. It's just about compensation. And I think this is where the comparison with Oregon is helpful. In the two years after 37 passed in your state, property owners filed more than 6,000 claims right. asking for nearly $11 billion, with a B, dollars in compensation. That's an estimate right. from Portland State University. Uh, but as you say, communities just didn't have that money, so they, they wound up taking the escape clause. And that meant that Thousands and thousands of housing units could have been built on farm and forest land around the state of Oregon. And what uh, folks discovered in the in the process of, of um, well, our our organization, One Thousand Friends of Oregon, and several Willamette Valley counties, produced maps showing where the claims were and what size they were. And what jumps out from those maps is that a lot of it was big timberland holdings, because it wasn't just elderly people who had owned property before land use planning laws came into effect. It was timber companies. And those timber companies now were filing claims to be exempted from all regulation of 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 forest practices and all zoning limitations that would prevent them from converting to residential development. Okay, And And that was alarming. To bring this back to Colorado, I think the contrast there is that the face of this measure was this widow who has since passed away, uh, yes. though there was big backing, are you saying, money from timber? Yeah, the timber okay. companies had a role in uh, sustaining the the property rights movement. A timber company executive was on the board of Oregonians in Action, and they... Uh, they did spend money to, to pass Measure 37. Okay. Um, and, and we're, then here in Colorado, you've certainly got farmers who the face of this, but it's also true that it is backed uh, to a large degree by the oil and gas industry. So uh, th- there's there's the little guy, there's the, the David, but there's also right. the Goliath in the room, I think, in both of these. So uh, three years after voters approved Measure 37, they voted essentially to undo it. With Measure 49, uh, and I just want to note that both measures passed with roughly the same support, 60-40. find that interesting. What yeah, was the 61% in the case of 37, 62% in the case of 49. That's right. Yeah, very similar. What was the prevailing thought in undoing what Oregon had done? Uh, people saw those maps. Uh, that moved a lot of people to come to Salem and lobby the legislature to do something about it. We were among them. The legislature um, decided to draft a bill that would change Measure 37, that would grant limited rights to build one, two, or three houses to individual property owners who'd actually held their land 
back in 1973, before these laws were passed, who still held it today, and uh, which took away the right to do major redevelopment of land. So if you were a timber company, uh, your forest land holding, you'd be able to build one, two, or three houses on it, but you couldn't be exempted from all other regulations affecting water quality, timber practices. You couldn't subdivide that land. If you were a large uh, farm landowner, you couldn't build that shopping center just outside of the city on farmland. You couldn't build a major residential subdivision in the Lambeth Valley. Um, you could only have one, two, or three houses if you demonstrated that you actually lost some some value. Okay, so in, and, to put this into Colorado parlance once again, to translate from sure. Oregonian to Coloradan, the idea is that the state went back, that the state collectively, the people of Oregon went back and yeah. said, we're going to narrowly tailor this. Right. Uh, what is fundamental to both the question in Oregon and now in Colorado with Amendment 74 is the threshold of compensating landowners if their property values are reduced. What advice would you have for Colorado voters as they sit at, at, at their tables, filling out their ballots, just weighing this idea of compensation versus the ability governments ought to have to regulate? Well, what was missing under Measure 37 was any effort to quantify actual loss as opposed to a claim that something had wiped out value. There were no lawsuits that went to the amount of money. There were no determinations of loss of value. What isn't clear to me is whether under a a system that Colorado is, is proposing, anybody is going to hold the oil companies to any proof of loss and how they would demonstrate that not being able to drill 2,500 feet from a house uh, wipes out value that they could get from drilling 3,500 feet from a house. You're referencing Prop 112, which is also on the ballot and is absolutely the elephant in the room here when we're talking about Amendment 74, which would increase setbacks for oil and gas drilling to 2,500 feet statewide. Uh, Bob, thanks so much for sharing what happened in Oregon with us. You bet. And good luck there in Colorado. Bob Stacy is a member of the Metro Council in Portland, Oregon. That state adopted, then changed a law similar to Amendment 74 on Colorado's ballot this year, dealing with property rights. As we said, there's an important interplay between 74 and Prop 112 on the Colorado ballot. Again, it would increase setbacks statewide for new oil and gas wells. And CPR's Grace Hood answers your questions about 112 at CPR.org. Elections make David Rothman feel poetic. That's a good thing, since he's our resident poet. He's written something new for us. It's called Enough. And before he reads it, he's going to tell us a little bit about it. So I wrote this uh, sometime in the last couple of months, thinking about what's going on politically and socially and culturally in our country, looking at what I think we're all seeing is an increasing temperature in every conversation, it seems like, and, and in so many public interactions. So one of the things that poetry can do, it seems to me, is to embody certain kinds of contradictions in a very dense, compact manner. And uh, I wanted to talk about the nature of our civil discourse to the best of my ability. And of course, I did it in a, in a sonnet, 
which is a love poem, always, in one way or another. So it's a love poem to to all of us and to our, frankly, to our country. Okay, here's David Rothman reading Enough. There has to be a better way than this. The frantic pace obscuring what time means, the endless sense that something is amiss, the numbing cold upon the flickering screens. There has to be a better way to live, where rage and outrage tire of their striptease, where we realize that to get, we have to give, where opponents are not enemies. We'd better find a way to cool it down. We'd better learn to have more conversations. We need to learn that we're a common noun, admit some calculus of variations. Otherwise, well, you think this is rough? I've never heard a fire say enough. We'll post enough to CPR.org later today. And Colorado Matters continues after a break on CPR News. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio, for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. Look for CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio, for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. Look for CPR's Great Composers wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and it's flu season. People, in fact, have already been hospitalized. So the recommendation is to get a flu shot, anyone six months or older. Today, we're going to go back in time, though, 100 years ago, to the fall of 1918, when a flu pandemic hit the entire planet, killing tens of millions of people. What's more, one theory is that it started just over the Colorado state line. Dr. Rachel Hurley is Colorado State epidemiologist. She's going to share this history with us. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. And we're, we're pleased to have you on the show. Why did the flu season of 1918 become a global pandemic? Yeah, so certainly one of the factors that resulted in global transmission of this virus was was really the time, the era. Okay. Um, this was in the middle of World War One, And so there was a lot of movement of, of troops that was really sort of unprecedented for the time that really resulted in transmission across the globe of this virus. Okay. And that kind of movement is probably unlike anything the world had seen to that point. That's correct. Okay. Uh, well, what made it spread so quickly beyond that? 
Yeah, so this was, um, you know, anytime there's an influenza pandemic, it, it means that there's a new influenza virus that individuals do not really have an existing immune response to. And so because of that, people are highly susceptible to that infection, and it can easily spread from person to person. It also means potentially that people can have much more severe outcomes because their immune system has not seen that virus pre- previously. It can really result in much greater rates of hospitalization or even mortality. Ah. Uh, was 1918 the the worst pandemic? Put it into some context for us. It is. So it is known as the mother of all pandemics for a reason. Um, so it is. it certainly was, I think, the really the largest pandemic to this day that um, the globe has experienced. So as you mentioned, tens of millions of deaths occurred worldwide, including deaths, of course, here in Colorado. How does it compare to, I don't know, like the, the, the Black Death, I think of? Yeah, so the Black Death did have higher mortality rates, but it was much more confined. Again, going back to that idea that because of all of this true movement, um, there were really cases that occurred across the globe. So as we were researching this topic, we found that this pandemic really hits home for people. We were discussing it around our editorial meeting, and my colleague, Andrea Dukakis recalls the effect on her family. My father's side of the family were Greek immigrants, and I had always heard about the 1918 flu epidemic because shortly after they arrived in the U.S., the epidemic hit and um, everyone was sick in the family. My great-grandfather died. So did the oldest brother in the family. Um, And I heard stories about carts being driven around towns and picking up dead bodies. Everyone was just terrified of getting sick. What accounts have you heard? Yeah, so there are lots of different stories that that occurred that come out of Colorado history books. Um, So one um, one particular community that was very hard hit was Silverton, Colorado. Um, So Silverton obviously had a large mining population. And during the 1918 pandemic, it was really that population of 20 to 40-year-olds that were hardest hit, which I think was a large percentage of the Silverton community, the mining community. And, And during the pandemic, there's stories of of, you know, hundreds of deaths occurring in Silverton. Um, In one night alone, 10 deaths occurring. Um, The city hall was converted to a makeshift hospital to house people. They didn't have enough resources to deal with the dead bodies. Um, Also stories about not having sufficient medical care there, please, in the city, um, really to have medical personnel sent to the town to, to help assist. Did you find that there were big differences in how the flu hit different communities in Colorado and how they responded? Absolutely. So Gunnison is is a community that was really known as an escape community at the time. So Gunnison, I think very differently from Silverton and other communities in Colorado, um, very early on established some very strict quarantine requirements. So they put up barricades to the city. They did not allow cars to pass through. They stopped trains. Anyone that wanted to get off in Gunnison had to go into a forced quarantine for several days. Um, Closed schools very early. Lots of strict measures in place that that did ultimately protect the town of Gunnison. But they actually worked. That wasn't just a sort of fear-mongering step. No, absolutely. Well, I, I would say that there certainly was fear. Yeah. They did, there were neighboring communities that were, were seeing very high mortality rates and very high um, attack rates, lots of cases occurring in neighboring communities. And so I think Gunnison was very proactive. Okay. One theory is that the 1918 flu originated just over the Colorado border in Kansas and, as we've said, then spread with the movement of U.S. soldiers in World War One. 
Uh, I don't know. You'd think that it would have appeared in the coastal states, you know, maybe brought in by transoceanic travel. What's this Kansas theory? Yeah, so the Kansas theory... Um, so so the, the pandemic occurred in several waves. The largest wave you mentioned was the second wave, the fall of 1918. But earlier in the spring, including as early as January, there were documented cases, cases that were reported to the federal government that occurred in the town of Haskell, Kansas, that were these severe influenza or pneumonia type cases that were very unusual to the, the medical provider there that was taking care of these patients. And then we also know that individuals from that community then later on moved to Fort Fort Lep, no Fort. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. A fort near Manhattan, Kansas. Okay. Um, a military training facility where um, where a large outbreak occurred in the spring. And so, going back to Haskell, Kansas, one of the reasons that Haskell, Kansas, has been targeted is not only did those early cases appear, but Haskell and that area of the country are really part of a large migratory flyway. And we do know that um, there's lots of belief, there's lots of research that's shown that this virus really is of avian origin. And so we believe that perhaps this came out of wild birds, then was in domesticated birds, and then transmitted to humans. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, Might this be Fort Riley? I think it was Camp Funston, actually. Okay, all right. Camp Funston, as I recall. <laughs> Furiously Googling to help you out here. Uh, what kinds of responses did you see in Colorado that that made no sense? Um, because I, I have to think that there were folks taking steps that maybe weren't really that helpful. Yeah, so lots of interesting things. Um, steam baths were promoted. There were recommendations to not eat meat. There were... Um, all sorts of salves and creams and lotions and things you can imagine. Certainly, um, lots of fresh air was recommended. Uh, but a lot of the social distancing measures, those measures that are put in place um, really to prevent transmission, were also haphazardly applied. So things like um, on streetcars, the, the windows were required to be open, but people complained, and so then they closed every other window. And things like requiring people to wear masks in certain settings, but not other settings, closing churches and theaters, but perhaps not closing other types of businesses. So so some of those measures were applied not universally. And, and I think to this day, our understanding of those social distancing measures is that they certainly can work, but they do need to be applied consistently. Now, I think of Colorado in this area. So we're talking about 1918. We're looking back 100 years to the global flu pandemic. But I think of Colorado in that era as being a destination for people with tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. The idea was that the the air here was good for your lungs. Uh, Wouldn't they have been more vulnerable to flu? Yes, I think we we certainly know to this day that individuals with chronic medical conditions, including respiratory conditions, are at increased risk for severe outcomes due to influenza. So absolutely, that population would have been at greater risk. Okay. Anything we've learned from 1918 that's still valuable? Yeah, so I think we've um, we've learned a lot about um, the immune response to to viruses and how novel viruses really can impact um, populations. You know, there's been lots of work done to reconstruct this virus and try and study the virulence factors associated w- with the virus. One question is, could it happen again? Right, that has to be in scientists' minds. Yeah, so certainly, I think we are always vulnerable to pandemics. I think one of the one of the you know, very, I think, helpful things we have now is antibiotics. So a lot of the cases that occurred in 1918 were um, the influenza virus caused secondary bacterial pneumonia. And so we now have antibiotics to treat those individuals. We also, of course, have vaccine and antiviral medications. So lots of things now that um, I think would, I think, 
decrease the transmission of the virus. So it's those secondary things that people died from, not necessarily the initial flu infection. And what have people learned by studying the 1918 flu? I'm even I'm perplexed as to how you do that. Yes. So there was interesting reconstruction of this virus, really trying to isolate um, DNA segments from individuals that had previously died of the 1918 flu and out of tissue specimens. They were able to reconstruct this virus and and learn about how this virus you know, differently than other influenza viruses, really did have a strong affinity for the lower respiratory tract. So really did cause lower respiratory tract or pneumonia type symptoms in people, perhaps more so than other types of influenza have the ability to do. And then there's also interesting um, studies that have been trying to look at why certain age groups between 20 and 40 were particularly vulnerable to the flu. Uh, which you've, you've, you've hinted at already in this conversation. Yes. Yeah. So so really, we think that that population of 20 to 40 year olds had during their early childhood experienced a different type of influenza virus. And that really influenced um, their immune response to the 1918 virus and really resulted in them having an ineffective or dysregulated immune response and made them particularly vulnerable then to secondary bacterial pneumonia. How do you study a flu virus from 1918? Like, how do you begin to map what it would look like? Yeah, so advanced molecular techniques are used to to really put together those DNA segments that were found in tissue from individuals that died in 1918. Huh, and you put the virus back together and can and study it. Well, briefly before we go, what's the current Colorado flu season news so far this year? So we have had a number of influenza-associated hospitalizations in the state. Um, it does look like a, a bit quieter of a start than we had last year. But I think last year's influenza season being our worst on record is certainly a good reminder that influenza can be severe, and it's important to, to get the vaccine in the time is now. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Rachel Hurley, he is Colorado's state epidemiologist, and we talked about the influenza pandemic a century ago. Just say that flu season typically starts in October and peaks in late December. Remember that the vaccine requires a few weeks to take effect, and so public health officials say now is the time for a flu shot. Try to guess where these next sounds come from. Sounds kind of otherworldly. In fact, that's from Earth, specifically an Antarctic ice shelf that hums as the wind blows over it. These sounds were discovered by geophysicists at Colorado State University, and they're not just a novelty. They could be an important gauge of climate change. Professor Rick Astor is on the phone. Hi, Rick. Good morning. These sounds specifically come from the Ross Ice Shelf, and they aren't normally audible to the human ear, I understand. You have to speed them up to hear them. What do they sound like to you? I wonder what you make of them. Well, uh, my first impression was that uh, sometimes they sound a bit like a didgeridoo. Okay. Um, but they're they're tonally complex, certainly. Tonally complex, yes. They they do indeed vary, uh, which is why I suppose it seems almost like the Earth is singing. Explain why the pitch varies. Yes. Well, uh, we um, decided after a quite a uh, testing a lot of hypotheses that uh, the uh, tones are being excited by the wind blowing across the subtle topography on this vast flat ice shelf, which is, after all, the size of 
Texas, but usually only a few hundred meters thick and floating on the ocean. So as the wind blows across these uh, small dunes of snow, um, it produces tones that get trapped in the surface of the ice shelf, and our sensitive seismographs pick them up. So that's the sound of the snow being blown about at the top of the ice shelf? Do I have that right? Well, it's more complex than that. The, the wind's actually pushing on the, uh, on the ice shelf and creating seismic waves. And these seismic waves are incessantly excited uh, in in the surface of the uh, of the ice shelf, which is snow grading to packed snow grading ultimately to glacial ice. Huh. Uh, you discovered these vibrations through seismometers, which you know I normally think of as as used to track earthquakes. How how could this information be helpful to you? Well. Uh, as these waves are trapped in the near surface of the ice shelf, um, they provide a physical measure of the of the properties of that uh, near surface environment on the ice shelf. How strong it is. Uh, we discovered that as the snow changes, and in particular as the temperature warms, these tones change. So they can tell us, uh, for instance, if the near surface of the ice shelf is uh, approaching melting or even undergoing a little bit of, of melting. Fascinating. So I have a feeling that that has all kinds of implications, perhaps, for climate change? Well, indeed. Um, Antarctic ice shelves are a very important component of the, of the uh, glacial system. They act a bit like a cork in the bottle. They keep these enormous glaciers in the interior of Antarctica from flowing more rapidly into the ocean and uh, raising global sea level. So uh, it's really important to uh, be able to assess their health and understand if they are um, collapsing. And we have seen some examples in the far north part of Antarctica and the Antarctic Peninsula where ice shells have collapsed. Uh, we want to be able to understand on what time scale that's happening and uh, understand what the processes are. Does that mean that you'd want to embed sort of permanent... Uh, versions of this technology down there, or maybe that's already the case, versus, I don't know, you know, video or cameras that track this? Well, certainly this is uh, just one tool in the, uh, in the uh, toolbox for studying ice shells. In this case, it's got an advantage in that seismographs are relatively easy to deploy. We uh, just have to carry a sensor a few meters down from the surface yeah. and let it run. And uh, they provide minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, day-to-day, month-to-month, and year-to-year uh, assessments of the uh, state of the, of the near surface of the ice shelf that could be hard to uh, determine by other methods, digging snow pits and so forth. Could this happen with other um, globs of snow and ice? What about even like sand dunes? I just wonder if this, this translates to other types of topography. Yeah, it, it turns out there are lots of ways uh, geophysically that the Earth can sing, and sand dunes indeed can make uh, uh, music-like tones, but it's a different process caused by uh, falling sand grains along dunes. This is, as far as we know, the first observation uh, in detail of this sort of uh, um, phenomenon in, uh, in Antarctic snow and ice, but we suspect it's far more uh, widespread and uh, it should occur in other places where you have large, flat ice shells with this type of snow and ice combination. Before we go, just give us the big picture. What is the effect on the rest of the planet with ice shelves melting? 
Yeah, as I, as I mentioned, ice shelves are really a critical part of the uh, stabilization of uh, glaciers that are coming off of Antarctica. There's an incredible amount of ice in Antarctica on land, and over 90% of Earth's ice is there. And these ice shelves help restrain uh, these enormous glaciers from bringing ice more rapidly into the uh, into the ocean, where it melts and raises global sea level. Um, it's a really important component of uh, you know the feedback system that keeps the ice stable in Antarctica. And once these ice shelves uh, collapse, uh, as we've seen in a few places in the Antarctic Peninsula, the glaciers uh, inland do indeed speed up and deliver more ice to the ocean, which rapidly melts. Thanks for being with us. That's Rick Astor, geophysics professor at CSU. His team recently discovered Antarctica's singing ice shelf. Pastorius Reservoir is a pretty and popular fishing spot near Durango. But soon it's going dry, at least for this season. The state has to drain the lake after someone illegally stocked it with a predatory fish called northern pike. Harry Crockett, a biologist with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, isn't sure why someone would do that, but he told CPR's Mike Lamp he has a good guess. I assume because they want to fish for those fish. Northern pike are a fun fish to catch. They're a strong fighter. They get big, and they have a contingent of people who like to fish for them. If we knew who the person was, we'd ask them. This is not the first time it's happened at Pastorius that someone has dumped in a bunch of fish, presumably just to catch them. And Crockett says it's not uncommon elsewhere in Colorado. We have a good 50 or so documented instances of illegal stocking around the state. And of course, this is a way underestimate because those are the only ones that come to our attention. Basic biology tells you that there have been many more attempts that haven't succeeded to where the fish haven't established themselves as a population, so they never come to our attention. Well, you want to think of uh, fishing people as, you know, kind of conscientious conservationists, and yet you have this example of at least a handful of people, because they want to catch a certain kind of fish, uh, dump those fish in a reservoir where they don't belong. I'm sure that it is a handful of people. I would bet you that 99-plus percent of our anglers are people who would never consider doing something like this, but a small minority can cause a lot of damage for us. What kind of damage? Um, In the case of Pastorius, as we've seen in the past, what you get when you put a top-level predator like that into a body of water that doesn't have one is those fish are going to go like gangbusters for a while and seem to be doing well because they're eating all the fish, uh, all the prey base. But once that prey base is gone, then um, you're going to end up with a large number of stunted, skinny fish. Anglers call them hammer handles. Um, Northern pike are very susceptible to this, as are a lot of other species. So you will eventually end up with a fishery that nobody wants to fish at. Do you know how someone uh, carries out this illegal stocking? Do you just, like, drive up with a big tank of fish or go out in a boat or something or what? Well, (laughs) um, one part of the problem is that it's pretty easy to do and pretty hard to get caught at. You know, fish can be moved in tanks. They can be moved in boat wells. They can be moved short distances, you know, just in a bucket. 
if you put your mind to it, it's not terribly hard to keep a fish alive for a few hours and transport it from one place to another. And you can drop a relatively small number of these northern pike, for example, into the reservoir, and then before long, there's a much greater number? Um, Let me think about this, because I don't want to be necessarily giving people a cookbook for Uh how to do this. (laughs) That's definitely true. You know, if the fish that get moved are adults and they're of reproductive age, and they happen to get stocked into a place where they can survive then uh, it doesn't take many fish to get a population started. Does the state try to convince people who fish that this is a bad idea to kind of take ecosystems into your own hands this way? We definitely do. We have information about that on the back of our fishing brochure, at the counter when you buy a license, on our website, information that our law enforcement personnel hand out. Um, So we try in a lot of ways to get the word out. And, of course, there are substantial penalties if you happen to get caught and we can make a case against you. You can be fined up to $10,000. There's a possibility that you can do jail time. You can be responsible for the cost of remediation. Uh, But you would also hope that people would just want to do the right thing. CPR's Mike Lamp talking with Harry Crockett, a biologist with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, about the problem of people putting fish illegally into state waterways. Finally today, the Denver modern dance company Wonderbound is premiering Wicked Bayou. It follows childhood friends from different backgrounds as they deal with the aftermath of a severe storm and the loss of their families. The production is based on Creole and Cajun folklore and features music from a boulder band called The Widow's Bane. We got a preview of Wicked Bayou when the band stopped by the CPR performance studio. Here's the song, Don't Be Afraid, It's Only Death. Just be on that wide river sticks Is a place where sick men like me get our kicks It's a waiting room like you've never seen before with a 25-piece band and a 10,000-square-foot ballroom floor now. There's a lady all dressed in red, all gussied up with a bullet in her head. Looks like she could use a drink or a dance with the dead. The Widow's Bane performing music from their collaboration with Denver's Wonderbound Dance Company. Wicked Bayou runs through Sunday. Hard to match that guy's vocal quality. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is what I said.